Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or physician, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, Dwalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to yet another episode of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, one where we're going to be diving into how to lose your shirt, literally and figuratively, (laughs) when it comes to your acquisition-based strategy. That's right. This is the second big challenge that we see most people failing at when they start out building a group practice, how to go about acquiring another practice. I'm gonna give you a couple of things to think about so you know it'll be a note-taking episode. Get your pad and pen ready. My Mila coffee maker is broken. Shock and horrors. Stay tuned, we gotta keep this podcast on the air. Keep it rolling, stick around, I'll be right back. Welcome, everybody, once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports, and I am without my favorite coffee instrument, my Mila coffee maker. Stop stop the presses, hold the phone, send the paramedics. It is really DEFCON 5 around here, and things are getting a little dicey. I had to actually revert back to, don't tell anybody, but a drip coffee maker, not a Keurig, but a drip coffee maker. Let's just say that the Mila is in a package heading out for repair and it better be back soon. Nonetheless, let's get down to brass tacks. Why you tuned in? I have strung together a series, if you will, um, for a couple episodes now around the challenges we see people struggling with when it comes to building a group practice. I talked about how you transition out of a clinical role and into a leadership role in the last podcast. Today, we're going to talk about buying practices. Most of the clients we have the good fortune to work with are growing through acquisition. Rarely do they employ an outright de novo strategy, unless they're a specialty, particularly like a pedo ortho uh, type of a group or something, but most of our general dentistry clients are, are are growing their footprint through acquisitions. That is not unusual. I would tell you that's the way most of the industry is constituted. Uh, and there are, I'd say, an ample amount of practices to acquire at any given point in time. I'm not going to go through uh, sourcing acquisitions today. That's probably food for a cannon fodder for another podcast episode. I want to talk really more about um, the way we rationalize acquiring practices. And I'm going to maybe give you the answer before I give you the trials and tribulations uh, and the challenges that you're going to encounter. So the answer to any acquisition-based growth strategy is the following. You never buy a business to maintain it. You only buy a business to improve it. When you're really confident in your secret sauce and your ability to make 
an operational impact in that business when your ability in your ability to generate more revenue or a combination of all of the above that business that you acquire that practice that you acquire should look substantially different from a revenue context and an expense context a year down the road and certainly even better than that two years down the road and this is where it's really uh critical for you to be able to size up what those opportunities are before you make the offer uh, or before the ink dries on the paper is probably a better way of putting it. What we find is that there are far too many people that are building group practices that are, you know, backing into and relying upon what I would call an, ag an aggregator strategy. They just want to acquire dots on a map. Because they feel like if they can assemble a business that it, that goes from a million dollars in EBITDA to a business that uh, assembles $2 million in EBITDA, $3 million in EBITDA, that business is going to value more highly than their original $1 million EBITDA business. And while that is true, it will value more highly. That is equity on balance sheet. That is not the same thing as free cash flow. The lack of free cash flow on a bad acquisition or an underperforming acquisition or a, an acquisition that just goes sideways can create massive challenges for you because it may not eclipse the debt payments on an annual basis. This is where we see somebody's core practice, their, their bell cow practice, their high performing original practice that cash flows wonderfully. This is where we see those initial practices funding an underperforming acquisition covering their operational shortcomings and that the funds required for debt service and, and being a drag on free cash flow this happens at an alarming rate and it happens far more often than you would care to ever know so the first thing you've got to get across if you listen to no more uh, aspect of this podcast simplify it to say that when you acquire a business you better have a top two or three uh, strategies for growing revenue and a top two or three strategies for reducing some aspect of cost in that business ideally a combination of all of the above if you can create revenue generation and if you can create further cost containment you are going to be expanding margins at a faster rate and freeing up free cash flow that should more than be be more than sufficient to satisfy um, the impact of, of the debt service on an annual basis. And if you can't, treading water is not a strategy strategy for success because you ultimately drown if there's not a lifeline thrown to you. And this is the the challenge that many of you, probably in the audience, there are probably a lot of you kind of nodding your head like, yeah, I've been there, done that. And others are, are setting out on their growth strategy and they're not um, fully cognizant of the jeopardy that this can outright create. So the things to keep in mind here is, you know, one, it's very easy to overpay for a practice because most of the brokers out there are going to represent a practice for sale from an owner operator model and they're going to represent it 
uh, from a valuation context as a percentage of collections. Percentage of collections is something easy to get banks to fund the acquisition and the broker's interest is to get paid. They want the practice to sell. They don't care if you buy it or anybody else buys it. Um, but they just want to make sure the practice gets sold. So having a realistic valuation multiple as a percentage of collections is rational for a broker. And it is also uh, something that could mean that you are not aware of how to reconcile a, an associate-driven practice in a different way than an owner-driven practice. And that comes down to normalizing clinical compensation, which is one of the steps of understanding EBITDA. And, and if you can't bridge that gap that I just said, you might want to pump the brakes on your growth strategy here, because the likelihood is it will get you into problems around free cash flow when all is said and done, and that is not a place you want to be. So avoid overpaying for practice by understanding the difference in valuation methodologies, percentage of collections versus multiple of EBITDA. And also understanding the difference between e EBITDA in a practice and free cash flow after taxes and after um, debt service is satisfied. Those are critically important because small businesses live and die by free cash flow. If you're going to build a larger enterprise, it's going to value as a multiple of EBITDA. But free cash flow and EBITDA are not the same thing. So we need to understand what the differences are and we need to be able to calculate them relatively accurately and then we also need to be able to forecast the revenue generation and the cost containment impact that we're going to make on that practice after we acquire it if we can do all of those then then we're ready to make the acquisition and we go into it with a higher degree of confidence that the outcomes both short term and long term are going to meet what our expectations are. The symptom of this that we hear from far too many clients is something akin to, how come I'm making less money right now and I own four practices versus what I was making when I only owned one? If you've ever heard somebody say that, they are a living, breathing example of everything I'm talking about right here. And they've made some of these fundamental mistakes as it relates to acquisitions. Obviously, income and wealth are competing interest in building a group practice. You've heard me say that before, and that's that's a natural thing you have to confront and a mindset that does need to shift when you start building a group practice. But understanding that in the short term, at least, lack of free cash flow, which is represented by declining income, is what will sink a group practice before it reaches any level of sustainability. And that, that is the key point. Yeah, EBITDA is, is a measure of equity on balance sheet. That's the wealth we want to create. That's the value of the company that we're taking the risk to build. And if we ever want to transact it, that's the that's multi-generational wealth opportunities. It is all of that. But in the short run, if, you're, if you don't understand the impact of free cash flow and how to calculate it in an associate-driven business, that's where you're going to get into a world of hurt. And sometimes, sometimes people don't survive it, all right? I mean, I'm not trying to cast a threat here or doom and gloom over things, but this can get real serious real fast. So 
the way we think about this when we're looking for a practice to acquire, and most of you are relying upon brokers to um, uh, avail you of those opportunities, they're going to list the the practice for sale as 80% of collections on a valuation multiple or something like that. So there's the amount of money that you're probably going to have to borrow from the bank. You can go on a website like calculator.net and you can put in an interest rate and a term and come up with a a monthly payment or an annualized debt service for that. That's not rocket science necessarily. And and being able to calculate the the impact of the annualized debt service over a a 10-year term or a seven-year term or whatever it is you want to use is pretty straightforward. The trickier thing comes down to when you analyze the profit and loss statement or whatever the financial representations around cash flow is that the uh, that the broker is is using in their um, uh, in their package to you 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 want to think about that business not from a standpoint of you working in it and being the owner operator now taking over the business for the seller but what's it going to cost you to put an associate in there and to pay him or her whatever the person market-based percentage of collections is or the collection rate um, that you have in your business, what does that do to the overall operational structure from a, a profit and loss standpoint? How does that change things? Because it's different when you're having to pay somebody else to work in there. I would also tell you that you want to be eyes wide open and really, really clear about the procedure mix of that business. And if you are going to hire a, an associate to work in that business after the seller transitions out, you need to be realistic and say, does the associate that you're going to hire, does an average associate have the ability to replicate the clinical skills necessary to do all of that clinical work that the seller was doing. If they are, if the seller is a super producer, um, they can, they, they took all the, the, you know, latest continuing education. They, they have the ability to do all types of expanded clinical procedures and, and they do a high volume of them and, and they've been there for a while. So the case acceptance is probably really, really high. You know, you want to understand what all that looks like from a productive capacity standpoint. And you also want to understand what it looks like from a chart audit standpoint. Did they crown every tooth in every patient's mouth and there's literally no work left to be done? Or on the other hand, have they been patching and filling things for a decade and watching all of this stuff? Because either one of those crowning every tooth or watching every tooth and patching and filling are both problems when you potentially put an associate in there and they start promoting treatment plans to a patient base that for for as far as they're concerned has really nothing wrong with their mouth you know does that create ill will does that create a lack of confidence in the patient base with you or your associate or whoever's working in there that can be a challenge so you want to tread lightly on that and and be understanding of the potential dentistry inherent in that practice. And then certainly if if the uh, seller were a super producer and generated a, a massive amount of you know clinical dentistry, does does an average associate have the ability to step into those shoes and and maintain that volume? And if they don't, 
have you pressure tested that practice to see if the revenue did decline, how far it would decline before you went cash flow negative? That's kind of the worst case scenario, isn't it? But all too often, we get desperate. We feel like, well, there's just not a lot of practices to acquire. I'm always losing them to the you know, latest, greatest enterprise level DSO. And, and I feel like I, I, if I don't buy this one, I'm, I'm never, I'm, another one's not going to come on the market for a decade or something crazy like that. Or you fall in love with a practice and you got to have it. And look, I get it, but this is not the time to become desperate. Okay. And if you do end up I don't know, paying top dollar or above market rate, or it's a competitive process or something along those lines. And, and you find yourself maybe having to reach a little bit to acquire a practice. Have you really done the analysis to pressure test it? Meaning how much might that business potentially take a downturn in terms of revenue? And how does that flow through the cost structure of the business before it starts to bottom out? And when you when taken in context of what the annualized debt service is, how much in the red are you going to end up being in that scenario? These are all really important things to consider before you acquire the practice. And these are things you should also consider, at least academically, before you start out on your growth strategy. Because if you're not aware of what your your own secret sauce is, how do you know how to apply it for improvement in the business you're about to acquire? And that, you know, is a different kind of a mindset. This is a discipline to be in um, that many of the enterprise level DSOs are quite frankly excellent at. And those that aren't very good at it, that are just in the aggregator play of trying to acquire dots on a map and use volume of EBITDA on a recap to, to get their equity out of it, those are the ones that are in this rising rate environment, at least, are, are facing a lot of challenges uh, around sustainability, not just growth strategy, but fighting for their lives. All right. And I don't want you to be in that scenario. Uh, and, and it's a scenario that is relatively avoidable. I don't want to say it's predictable, but it's relatively avoidable. And these are things that that you can consider ahead of time. You know, the other thing to, to consider about this is a firm understanding of fixed costs and variable costs. And a dental practice, and to a degree, most all healthcare practices, are really a wonderful blend of fixed costs and variable costs. And by that, I mean that, you know, once you build a business that generates uh, revenue above and beyond the fixed cost structure of the business, there's relatively low variable cost, incremental cost thereafter. So each dollar of revenue that you're able to tack on to the, the practice and the business generates progressively greater and greater marginal improvement. As long as, as your variable costs aren't completely out of whack and, and you're scaling yourself into oblivion by, by throwing more dollars at it. And I know that most of you aren't. So Understanding fixed and variable costs, you're probably well-versed because you you know a lot about your current business, the business that you own. So the reason I bring this up is because we usually think about fixed costs and variable costs from a growth context around what I just said. Each additional dollar of revenue drops more dollars to the bottom line or drops more pennies to the bottom line. Uh, and that's the beautiful thing about a healthcare business. 
The flip side to that, though, is worth consideration, which is that in a smaller revenue business, lower revenue business, you can make a good case that they are not nearly as marginally profitable from an overhead construct. And what I mean by that is if we have you know, a fixed cost structure that could be relatively the same one practice to another, or at least within reason, you may find that a lower revenue practice doesn't value as highly from a percentage of collections as a larger revenue practice would. And you may think that because the lower revenue practice values lower as a percentage of collections, which is also usually a lower absolute dollar amount, that lower revenue practices are a screaming deal. You don't have to borrow as much money typically to buy them. And, you know, the valuation theory around percentage of collections is one that is um, uh, seemingly pretty attractive. Be careful about that. Because these are businesses that are struggling to to really uh, get above and 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 beyond their cost structure, and they may not be generating a whole heck of a lot of uh, operating income or EBITDA, if any at all, after you factor in the total cost structure of the business. And if they're not, then I can all but guarantee you they're not going to uh, generate free cash flow after debt service. So, you know, we talk about the million dollar revenue practice and, you know, it values at 100% of collections or something like that, or even businesses that generate far more in collections than a million dollars. And that talk about what, what it costs to acquire them and the percentage of collections and the multiple of EBITDA and all those types of things. But when we start backing into practices that are maybe ADA average in revenue and below, call it 750 grand in revenue and below, and then we start looking at EBITDA-based valuation multiples at a low percentage of collection multiple. These are businesses that are really a little bit out of whack. Obviously, if you're going to acquire them, you have to have some type of itemized revenue generation opportunity and some type of itemized um, uh, cost containment methodology. If you can do all of that, you're probably in a good position. And if you can't, you're going to be in a world of hurt and you're going to be negative on free cash flow. So I hope all of this makes sense to you. I understand it's complicated. And I understand that it can be, um, you know, a bit challenging as it relates to uh, following on on a on a uh, podcast. But these are the types of things to keep in mind around your growth strategy if you're going to add additional locations. If you've got questions about any of this, please feel free to drop me a line or send me an email or book a call with me. I'd be happy to dig into any and all of it with you. I really appreciate you being both a listener and a subscriber, and we'll see you on the next episode.